0: This episode was recorded on Thursday, March 5th, at 11.59 a.m. Eastern Time. So it's likely things have changed by the time you're listening. But here's where we're at.
1: From 3 Uncanny 4, this is Viral, a show
0: about COVID-19. I'm your host, TJ Raphael. And I'm reporter Emily Saul. If you're just tuning in, be sure to check out our first episode, Known Unknowns, The Virus in the Market, where we covered the basics and discussed how anxiety surrounding COVID-19 is likely to affect the global economy.
1: On today's show, we'll be diving into the science behind coronavirus. How does a virus make the jump from animals to humans? And what are scientists actually doing to try and combat this pandemic? As COVID-19 continues to spread, more and more people are wondering, why isn't there a vaccine? The sooner we get one, the sooner the global threat goes away, right? Today, we go inside one of the sci-fi-like labs working around the clock to understand this virus and learn why it's actually going to take a
0: while. But first, the news. Emily, what's the latest? Across the U.S., 18 different states have reported cases of coronavirus, and 11 people have died. Ten of those deaths were in Washington state. The other, in California. There are 163 confirmed cases nationally. Globally, there are over 90,000 cases and more than 3,000 deaths attributed to COVID-19. Congress has pledged $8.3 billion to battling the outbreak, yet concerns remain regarding the availability of testing kits from the CDC. Meanwhile, the markets continue to swing wildly, sliding again Thursday in the United States.
1: Today, we're going to talk to some of the leading scientists chasing down COVID-19. The virus, as you've probably heard, was infecting animals, and then it jumped to humans. Understanding that process is key to preventing infection. And that's where we want
0: to begin. So we spoke with Dr. Angela Rasmussen, a scientist at Columbia University. She looks at how, specifically, a virus makes people and other animals sick. What is going on inside an animal's lungs and throats and bodies when a virus moves in? So we've been hearing a lot about how COVID-19 started in animals and then got to humans. But how does that actually happen? Did a a bat sneeze on a person?
1: Okay, stop. Come on. Scientists don't think this was transmitted from animals to humans via sneeze.
0: (laughs) Fine. (laughs) This is true. Uh, And we may never know precisely which bat or snake or whatever, sneezed or did what to whomever. We go through our lives swimming through an invisible sea of contagion without even thinking about it. These viruses are on the surfaces we touch, the animals, chihuahuas, parakeets, we interact with, and we just don't notice. The thing is, it's actually very important to figure out which animal had it and how it jumped to humans. That will help track the disease and come up with ways of stopping a pandemic and also preventing future disease. All right, so how do we do that? Well, first, you have to figure out which animal had it. Right now, bats are the primary suspect, but nobody is sure if they're actually guilty yet. Yes, a lot of bats have a virus that is genetically similar to the one that causes COVID-19, but they don't seem to actually have COVID-19.
3: People have done necropsies on, on bats that they've sampled from in the wild, and there's no, there's no obvious evidence of pathology or of, of tissue damage or disease.
0: So scientists all around the world are, I'm sorry to say, cutting open animals to figure out which ones seem to have a disease, like COVID-19. And look, I'm a big animal lover, so this isn't always easy to hear. But this isn't about testing mascaras. This is how it works. If we don't do this, we don't learn the things we need to know about how to properly treat people and stop infection. And by the way, viruses go from animals to humans all of the time, literally an uncountable number of times. You've had viruses leave your dog or cat or horse or rat. Your rat? Well, I mean, I don't have a rat, I'm pro-rat. These viruses jump from their bodies into our bodies all the time, but it's almost never a big deal because the virus from a dog or cat or rat aren't evolved
3: to survive in our bodies. And as as humans have sort of uh, branched out and begun developing new wild places to live, um, we're we're coming into contact with animals more Um, also because of climate change uh, that has disrupted. The ecological environments that many animals are living in. And when you have that kind of ecological disruption, um, that creates an environment for what we call spillover, which is uh, the transmission of viruses that are normally ecologically present in these animals um, spilling over into, into human populations.
0: Yet we don't have pandemics every day. They only happen every once in a while. And that's because it takes this spill the collision of human and animal, and evolution of the animal virus so that it can breach our healthy cells and invade.
3: The virus has to be able to bind uh, human protein um, in order to enter the cells. Once the virus is inside, many people know that viruses hijack uh, the host cell to replicate themselves. So the virus also has to be able to interact with the proteins inside that cell in order to to do that hijacking and in order to replicate itself. And we don't know what all of those different factors are, but clearly SARS-Coronavirus-2 has been able to adapt, adapt to uh, to have those host pathogen interactions, we call them, and, um, and replicate itself inside human cells.
0: The virus that causes COVID-19? the one called SARS-Coronavirus-2, is actually sort of a miracle. Coronaviruses are probably millions of years old, with countless, trillion, quadrillion, babillion, whatever, mutations over that time. It's only happened seven times. Seven, at least that we know of, that the virus has mutated in this way to land in humans and cause a disease.
1: I mean, with odds like that, it should play the lottery.
0: Yeah, you should stick to your day job. (laughs) Anywho, once that jump happens, we need to start learning about it. And there are two ways we can do that. One can drop the virus on some cells in a Petri dish and watch. Uh,
3: But that only tells you part of the story. So when we want to look at um, how a virus infects a cell, we can look at that in cell culture. When we want to understand how a virus causes disease, we need to infect animals uh, in the lab. Um, and the reason for that is that when you infect a cell, it doesn't necessarily reflect how different, different types of cells, different tissues are going to interact with each other in the context of, of an organism um, like us. For COVID-19, uh, you would infect the animal via um, intranasal uh, inoculation. So you take the animal, um, whether it's a macaque or a mouse, and you apply the virus uh, basically to their nose and um, that, that virus will then infect the cells in the respiratory tract that it normally does in people.
0: Yes, scientists rub the disease on the noses of the macaque monkeys. Angela doesn't do that personally. She's collaborating with people from the National Institute of Health who are doing it. What she's doing is analyzing samples from the monkeys, typically their blood or pieces of lung tissue, to see how the monkeys' immune systems respond to the virus. And for those wondering, sometimes the monkeys do get really sick. In those cases, there are vets waiting in the wings to euthanize them. And so, a moment of silence for the animals who have given their lives to save ours. Coming up,
1: after SARS and MERS, Why the heck don't we have a vaccine for this thing? And what are we actually waiting for?
0: That's next. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise. The island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Since I started working on this show, my friends are just blowing my phone up, asking me what the hell is going on with COVID-19. Is everyone you know just texting and calling you nonstop because of your work?
2: I have had a significant increase in text and Facebook messages uh, from friends and family and people that I don't know asking for advice. Yeah,
1: That's Matt Freeman. He's a virologist, which literally means a scientist that studies viruses. And this is kind of his moment. Because he's one of the few virologists who studies the strain of viruses known as, you guessed it, coronaviruses.
2: All of my friends and family know I work on viruses, and usually they don't really care about what I do (laughs) most of the time. But when there are these outbreaks, you know, I think that uh, that as a scientist, it's our job to be very good science communicators. And to put real information out there in a way that people can understand, right? That my mom can understand what's going on.
1: So here goes. This one is for Matt's mom. And all the regular people out there who want the lowdown on COVID-19. And look, we don't know when this all started really, but for Matt, it started on New Year's Eve. He was just chilling, having a relaxing night, in when he gets a notification on his computer.
2: Um, as a Twitter message saying uh, there's this strange pneumonia that was alerted in China um, that was found in, in, from patients, uh, from people that were uh, working in this market. And at the time, it was only a handful of cases. Generally, we would have thought it was flu or some other kind of known virus that we know of already. Um, but since coronaviruses, especially SARS and MERS, have been linked to animals in the past, it always, you know, all of these things pique our interest as they come.
1: You know, what's the equivalent of the bat signal? Do you and all your virologist friends start <laughs> texting each other? <laughs> you know, where do you go when you hear about something like that? And, and who do you call? I, I, I want to understand your community better, basically.
2: So there are not many people that work on these viruses. So I have friends from my previous labs uh, and people that I work with now where uh, we all kind of immediately emailed each other saying, did you see this thing? Is it not really a coronavirus, is it? Um And then it wasn't until uh, January 8th when uh, sequences started coming out and the initial samples were tested against SARS and MERS because the samples were in China. They definitely thought they wanted to make sure it wasn't SARS. Um, And it was identified then uh, in that basically second week of January as not SARS and not MERS. And it was this new virus.
1: And that that is Matt's moment. That's when he jumps into action. But something Matt told me that really surprised me was that he used to get a lot of flack for studying these kinds of one-off viruses instead of huge ones like influenza. And I just couldn't wrap my head around that. We always seem so caught off guard when these coronaviruses pop up. You know, SARS and then MERS, now COVID-19. I was really wondering, why isn't every virologist studying this stuff?
2: So I think the rationale is that why do we study SARS? Why do we care about what it does? We should be studying flu, which causes way more disease and and many more deaths around the world every year. Um, and the rationale was we have to study these viruses. No one, There aren't many people studying them. And we want to understand as much as we can about these viruses so we can prepare for the next one. And then in 2012, we had a next one. And everything we learned about SARS had prepared us for responding to MERS. And uh, we're now in the same um, in the same situation for this new virus, where it's another coronavirus, we know a lot about how to study SARS and MERS, and now we're studying uh, COVID-19. But I think importantly, the, the field has, uh, is not very large. There aren't many people that work on SARS and MERS and coronaviruses in general. So there is um, a clear need for uh, help along the way from all other kind of techniques and other fields that can really respond to this virus really quickly. Um, and I, I will point out, we still don't have therapeutics that are FDA approved for any of these viruses. So even though we've been studying those 15 years, there has been uh, a marked lack of investment in infrastructure and, and therapeutics for these viruses just because no one, you know, there's a, generally a lack of, of belief that they are going to continue to come.
1: Why is that? I mean, they do continue to come. Like it was in, you know, 2003, we saw SARS and then MERS came out and now COVID-19. Is there going to be a breaking point where I guess people in the pharmaceutical industry say this is something we should develop. I mean, I'm just trying to wrap my head around that because it seems like there's lots of panic and there was lots of panic last time too.
2: I think that the, you know, from a business standpoint versus a, a, a academic research standpoint, there are two different directions there and two different drivers. So if from a business you want to make money and I get that from a pharmaceutical standpoint um, and from, and so you're not going to develop therapeutics that are only going to treat a handful of people, right? You want the next blockbuster, a uh, cholesterol drug that you can sell to a billion people. You don't want a coronavirus drug that's going to, you can you maybe sell to one country that's going to treat 500 people. So that is just, it's just a profit margin there, which I totally understand. Um, I think that what we are, we, we have focused on in the last several years in my lab is to develop therapeutics that work against a lot of different viruses, not just one virus. So we're prepared for both the current outbreak and the, everything that comes in the future.
1: I wanted to get a sense of where this work happens, What's it mean to study a virus? I'm sitting here scared to touch the pole on the subway, and this guy is literally holding the actual virus in his hands every single
2: day. So we have what is called a biosafety level 3 laboratory, so where we wear um, a Tyvek suit, which is basically a big FedEx envelope with arms and legs, um, (laughs) and a respirator uh, around our waist, blowing clean HEPA-filtered air into a hood that we wear over our head. So it kind of looks like those um, uh, kind of hazmat suits that you know people wear you know a chemical spill you know kind of the same idea um, you can't get complacent when you're working in, in, in our virus room you have to always realize that you have a you know potentially uh, deadly pathogen in front of you and all of the training that we do basically prepares us for the confidence that we have in working with that virus mm-hmm. um, And so we have multiple safeguards, multiple levels of security, uh, both to get into the facility, but as well as protect us from being infected, you know, if that would happen.
1: Let's talk about vaccines, because I know that's a big question that a lot of people have. Um, How long is it going to take to make a vaccine? Um, Can we go through the steps of actually making one? What needs to be done?
2: So for vaccine work, what you need to know is um, is what. To target, so when uh, any kind of foreign body enters your body, enters humans or an animal, you get an antibody response. So your body recognizes that as foreign, and it mounts an immune response to it. And the major way we do that is that you um, you produce something called antibodies, which are these basically uh, proteins that recognize specific parts of uh, a foreign body in your in your own body. So in the case of viruses, um, what The vaccines are designed to do is they recognize the proteins on the surface of the virus. Um, And so in coronaviruses, those things are called spikes. Um, But ultimately, what you want to do is make as good antibodies as you can against that spike protein.
1: Sounds simple, right? Just kidding. It's really hard. But the thing is, I'm hearing all these people be like, "Okay, just make a vaccine already. Even the president said we could have one within two months. So what's the big deal? And look, I've come a long way since then, but I actually bombed high school biology, so I really needed Matt to spell this one out for me. I wanted to get technical. I wanted to know what's the holdup here, really.
2: So you can you can make a uh, you can make this a protein in the lab. That's easy. Um, you can uh, vaccinate an animal and say that you're getting antibodies against it against this virus. You have to have systems in place to be able to analyze um, those uh to whether you're going to make good antibodies or not and so that's what my job is uh as a as a virologist working with companies that are making vaccines so we can have the assays up and running so you can uh, as soon as they have um, antibodies they think are going to work or or vaccinate mice or vaccinate animals to be able to tell whether those antibodies are really going to be protective um, we can test that in the lab but you still have to be able to test it in people in a safe manner and so those tests take time um and there's only certain facilities that can do those kind of tests, and so that's really the problem, and that's that's the kind of the limiting factor. You have to do it very safely and in a stepwise manner before you can start vaccinating a million people or you know a billion people with a vaccine. Um, so uh, in the you know in in two months there's going to be vaccine companies that are putting their their vaccine into people in a safety testing procedure, not people that are infected with the virus, but just to see if I add my vaccine in a little tiny dose, does it make somebody, does it make an antibody response? If I go a little bit bigger, does that make an antibody response? If I go a little higher, does that, and and how high can I go before there's an adverse reaction or um, it's not, I'm not making any more antibodies? And so that takes time. That takes, you know, a couple months to do what's called a phase one trial to do that safety testing. Um, Before that also, you have to make a, a you have to make the protein or whatever your vaccine platform is in a very safe, clean manner. And so there's you have to have production facilities that are able to do this. Um, all of our drugs and everything that we take as humans, um, as medicine, has to be safety tested along the way in, in a very clean facility um, uh, when it's made and packaged and put into vials and before we get it. And so that all has to happen before you even go into people. And then the safety tests have to happen on those samples before they're even put into people. So it's, it's a long process. Um, once the phase one trials go for, for, you know, a month or two months, then the data has to be analyzed. That takes a little time. Uh, and then a phase two trial where you can now make, you know, infect or treat more people with the vaccine. So instead of a couple dozen in a phase one, maybe there's a couple hundred in a phase two. Um, and just all of this costs money and, and time to be able to do these studies.
1: How do you convince people to sign up to be part of a vaccine trial for something like COVID-19? Like, do I just write into Pfizer or whoever's making it and say, you know, I'm in? Um, and how do you get people to do that? I mean, it seems like it could be potentially very risky, right?
2: So we know how to do this. So vaccine companies and, and labs know how to make proteins all the time. Um, A lot of the vaccine platforms that have been used and are using for this have already been used for other viruses. And so it's the same kind of machine, except you're taking out the flu protein and you're adding in the spike protein from COVID-19. And there are vaccine tests that go on um, all the time, all around the country, all around the world, where people are put into, you know, you pay them to go into a trial um, and it's there, you know, they get they get consented and they get all the pros and cons and the safety um, reports about what this trial is. And it's their decision if they want to be enrolled or not. You, know, you can't make anybody do it.
1: Um, so I want to talk about best versus worst case scenario. Can you talk about that? Is, are we seeing the worst case scenario with this uh, this virus at this point And what would be the best case?
2: The best case scenario, you know, several weeks ago, maybe a month ago, was that it was contained in China and you, we had sporadic cases around the rest of the world, and all of those cases were contained, right? That's best case scenario is that um, whatever numbers were actually happening in China, they nobody got it outside. Um, and so we're past that scenario one now. Um, scenario two would have been that there is spread to these other countries, but maybe there's localized spread. So there's maybe a spread from a, a person to their, their spouse or um, the, a person to their healthcare worker. And that was the end of it. That doesn't seem to be happening. So scenario two is done. Um, scenario three, I think, is where we are now, which is that there is uh, there is spread to a lot of countries around the world, um, some in large clusters of cases, uh, like Iran and Italy, where there's hundreds and hundreds of cases. South Korea has thousands of cases now. Um, and now we are trying to maintain the healthcare systems in those countries so that they don't, they don't get overrun and they can contain this virus the way it is. Um, this is happening in the, in the U.S. where we have um, uh, about 100 total, including ones from this cruise ship, that, were, uh, that where they're being treated at hospitals and they're now being tested for in a, you know, all across the country. And so this is happening in countries all around the world. Everyone is, is in the same kind of situation where they're now detecting early cases or they're detecting dozens of cases a day and um, they're trying to maintain all of the healthcare system and all of the frontline healthcare workers to um, to be able to respond as quickly, as rapidly, and as safely to these outbreaks. Um, and so that's, I think, where we are now.
1: Is that worst case scenario?
2: So that's not worst case scenario. Right? I would say that's scenario three, <laughs> uh, where we do have local spread. We know we have local transmission in a lot of countries around the world. Um, but it's not in the you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands yet.
1: And. You know, Matt, I want to ask, are you scared right now with what's happening with COVID-19 when you look out in the world?
2: So I am definitely concerned. Um, I think that we are in the midst of a new uh, pandemic, and it is clearly in a lot of countries around the world, um, potentially everywhere. Uh, we are missing a lot of cases i would imagine because of the testing practices and parameters that um, that you know are just capacity drive- driven we can't test everybody for everything um, and we're only catching the severe cases and so for for this virus it looks like 80 percent of the people that are infected don't have severe disease they have mild or, or no disease at all so you're not going to go to the hospital if you just have a runny nose you know that doesn't make any sense. That's why this virus, I think, is can spread so well. It transmits incredibly well person to person, just like a standard cold virus um, that causes the the regular coronaviruses that give you a common cold during the winter. And it's spreading incredibly fast around the world.
1: We'll be hearing more from Matt and other experts in the coming weeks. Viral coronavirus is a three-uncanny-four production. The show is hosted by me, T.J. Raphael, with reporter Emily Saul. Our senior producer is Lena Richards. Our associate producer is Rahima nasa Our editor is Adam Davidson, and our fact checker is Parker Henry. We'll be coming to you next week with the latest on COVID-19. In the meantime, rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. It helps listeners like you find us.